This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.15, The Lost Episode, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and three orphans in a trench coat. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob, but big fan of tropical sunsets. <laughs> Before we get started with the episode, we have a couple of special thank yous and a request. So first, thank you to all of our new listeners, new followers, new likers, and new subscribers. We've gotten a lot of you over the last couple of weeks, and we really appreciate it. We especially enjoy all the comments. So double extra special thanks to the Gunpla Mechanic on Instagram, who, in addition to having an excellent collection of Gunpla photographs, also said some really nice things about the podcast. So we are very grateful. Speaking of Gunpla, Nina is interested in building her very first Gunpla. She's crafty, but she's never built anything quite like this before. So, listeners, we'd like you to give us some suggestions. What should her first Gunpla kit be? You can let us know on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Instagram, or you can email us at gundampodcast at gmail.com. The Japanese title of this episode is Kukuruso Doan no Shima, which is usually anglicized as Kukuru's Doan's Island. Pretty literal translation. Well, it hasn't really ever actually been translated. That's right. Yeah. This episode has never been part of an official US release. Correct. And it's never been officially translated except once in 1980 when it was included in the Italian dub. Huh. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, this is the only Gundam episode that has had this treatment. The only episode that has ever been vetoed by the original creator and excised from a foreign release. As Tom and I watch, we will be trying to figure out why that is the case. Was it subpar animation, bad writing, taboo, or otherwise censored content? The official responses are cryptic, as is tradition for Tomino. (laughs) So we're going to watch and see what we can glean. Yeah, there's no definitive explanation for why Tomino hates this episode so much. There are other bad episodes. There are other episodes with bad animation, and yet this is the only one. And he must have used a considerable amount of influence and cashed in a lot of favors in order to get this one vetoed in the way that he has. Hmm. And I think the fact that this was included in that Italian dub back in 1980 is actually very telling. Because remember, in 1980, the show had been canceled. The movies hadn't come out yet. This was not Gundam, the smash hit that defined a genre. This was Gundam, the toy commercial that we had to cancel. (laughs) And Tomino was not the father of Gundam. He was that director we hired to make our toy commercial who screwed it up so badly we had to cancel it. So, of course, when they were trying to go for a quick cash grab and licensing it in Italy, where for some (laughs) reason mecha anime was really taking off in the early 80s. Yeah, I really want to find out who the person or people were who were prescient enough to be like, do you know what trend we need to get on top of? This Japanese animation stuff. I can tell it's going to be really big. In 1980. So if any of our listeners are Italian speakers and can help us unravel this mystery, we would really appreciate that. 
While this episode has never been officially translated or released in the English-speaking world, it does still get included on Japanese copies of Gundam. So, for instance, it was included most recently on the 2017 limited edition Blu-ray release in Japan. And it's the reason why the answer to how many episodes of Gundam are there changes depending on where you ask the question. Now let's watch the episode and see what we can figure out. Crossing the South Pacific, the White Base takes a moment to rest and ready themselves for the threats that still lie ahead. Amuro is practicing docking his core fighter with the other Gundam components in mid-air when the White Base picks up a Federation distress call. Amuro goes to investigate, finding a small island and a crashed Federation plane. He lands and finds the plane's two crewmen tied to their seats in the wreck, badly injured but alive. Although Amuro tries to tend to their wounds, one pilot dies, then the other. He is pelted by stones from the undergrowth and fires his pistol into the bush. When he tries to pursue his attacker, flaming branches rain down on him. Soon he discovers the enemy, three orphans, and they shout at him to leave the island. He falls back to the core fighter, but now Azaku appears on the beach, and its pilot demands that Amuro surrender. Instead, Amuro leaps into his core fighter and tries to destroy the Zaku from the air with a missile. The Zaku hurls a boulder at the missile, and the ensuing explosion knocks Amuro unconscious. He wakes up in a hut on the island, under the ministrations of a young woman named Roland. She tells him to remain in bed until he's healed more, but Amuro ignores her. He finds the Zaku's pilot, a Zeon deserter named Kukuru's Doan, working in a nearby field. He demands the return of his fighter, but Doan refuses, well aware that Amuro will simply attack him again once he recovers his fighter. Doan tells Amuro that he needs this Zaku to defend himself, Roland, and the orphans when Zeon eventually tracks them down. Frustrated, Amuro leaves to search the island himself, climbing mountains and diving in the water off the beach. Exhausted, he sits on the sand, where Roland joins him. She wonders whether he can even appreciate the beauty of the sunset, but Amuro tells her that nothing is beautiful during war. He demands to know how it is that Doan has deceived the orphans into seeing him as a protector, but Roland tells him she doesn't know what he's talking about. Amuro returns to the search in the morning, but instead of his core fighter, he spots a lagoon approaching the island, carrying a single Zaku. Zeon has come for Doan at last. But in a stroke of luck, the white base has detected the lagoon and is approaching right behind it. Doan leads Amuro to a hidden cave behind a waterfall where the core fighter and the Zaku are stored, and together they emerge to defend the island. Amuro docks with the Gundam and destroys the lagoon, but Doan stops him from finishing off the remaining Zaku. He takes this moment to reveal that it was he who killed the orphan's parents, and that he deserted from the Xeon army after he was ordered to kill them as well. Declaring, I'll show you mobile suit martial arts, he charges at the enemy Zaku and punches it into the sea while Amuro watches in awe. Though the enemy has been defeated, Amuro tells Doan that he still has the scent of battle on him, and that it will continue drawing enemies to them until it is cleansed. Using the Gundam, he picks up Doan Zaku and hurls it out into the ocean. The orphans protest that Amuro has thrown away their only means of protection, but Doan smiles and says that Amuro has done a very good thing. This week we are discussing Mobile Suit Gundam episode. This is hard because 
It has a number in Japanese, but not in English. So this week we are discussing Kukuru's Doan's Island, which in the Japanese canon is number 15, and in the English canon does, does not, not exist. exist. We didn't mean to do that at the same time. It just happened beautifully. So the question with this episode is always, why was it not added to the English release? Why has it never been translated? Why is it not included on any of the DVD or Blu-ray releases? Before we watched this today, I had read descriptions of the episode, but I had never actually watched it myself. So I was coming into this fresh as well. And my expectation when I started watching it was going to be that there was nothing particularly wrong with it and that Tomino was just overreacting due to some behind the scenes drama, as has happened many times in Gundam's history. But then as I started watching it, it was more that I couldn't decide which of the many problems was the reason it couldn't be released outside of Japan. You mentioned you did a little bit of research about this episode before and that Tomino had given some not quite explanation for his reasoning behind not releasing the episode. What was that? When he was asked about this at a forum in the US and with anime creators, when they give interviews, most of them, most of the time are very, very strictly controlled by the PR reps. But that's a little less true in the West. Often creators giving interviews in English in America are a little bit freer to say what they really mean about things. And with Tomino, of course, we can never be certain if he's just trolling uh, <laughs> or if he actually means what he's saying. But that being said, when he was asked about why this episode had never been released, he said, there is a reason, but I can't tell you about it. Everyone is still alive. So. So whatever it is, it has to do with specific people on the production staff who would be embarrassed or ashamed if Tomino were to name them as the reasons why this episode was never released. Now, you just listened to the recap. On its surface, this should be right in keeping with what we've been watching so far. This should fit perfectly with the rest of Mobile Suit Gundam as we know it. A Xeon deserter hanging out on this tiny island. He is racked by his own PTSD and nightmares. He's killed people. He's made orphans and finally just couldn't do it anymore. And Amaro's interactions with this deserter, Amaro's suspicions of the motivations of adults and his disbelief that this man could have any like good motivation. Adults and Xeon in specific. He probably wouldn't feel this way if it was a Federation officer. But this is in keeping with a lot of the episodes we've seen so far dealing with the humanity of Xeon soldiers and the inhumanity of what is being asked of them. And we see Amuro having kind of come around to a more soldierly way of thinking and to a more us versus them way of thinking, confronted with people who just want to be left alone, who don't care that he's the Federation. They don't see him as a savior. They just want to be left alone. All he represents to them is the war that so far they've managed to, well, they've survived and would like to forget about. So it's very much in keeping thematically with the episodes that we've been dealing with lately. It feels like it would fit, but it doesn't. Oh my God, it's just so badly written. And it feels very un-Gundam. There are badly written episodes of Gundam, but this doesn't feel like a Gundam episode. Well, this, parts of the dialogue here and the events that happen feel completely nonsensical or like they undercut the show itself. You know, we have this, this man who's become a pacifist Right, who, the Xeon deserter, Doan. Clearly not a pacifist. Clearly not a pacifist. I mean, he 
in the big battle at the end, he kicks another Zaku into the ocean. And unless he went to rescue that pilot, he still killed the guy, whether he shot the Zaku or did Zaku martial arts with it. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely coming back to mobile suit martial arts. And at the very beginning of the episode, Amuro comes upon these two Federation pilots who have been shot down and are tied to their seats, which, great, they're still alive, but also they die like a minute after he gets there. They've been left to die. Yeah, very peaceful. And the various somewhat mysterious, or I think they're meant to be deep, but just come off badly comments from characters like Roland and Doan. You know, there's this scene where Amuro has been hunting for the core fighter all over the island. He's been searching the whole island and it's beautiful. And I think is clearly meant to be representative of the South Pacific, right? Mm-hmm. These, you know, dozens of tiny islands. Based on what we know, they're probably literally in the South Pacific right now. And Roland comes up on Amaro exhausted after even searching the beach and underwater and criticizes him for not even realizing what a beautiful sunset is happening right in front of him. And he mentions that in wartime, there's no time to think about beauty, which is an interesting discussion they could have, right? She could be saying something along the lines of, if you're not fighting for this, if you can't enjoy life, then what do you have to fight for? Like, if you can't stop and enjoy anything, then what's the point? But they don't go there. She makes some cryptic comments about how Doan says, if Amuro can get over his immaturity, he will be a really good soldier. Why the heck? Would Doan want Amuro to be a better soldier? Why? What? That what? What the what? <laughs> well, it's clear that it's clear that Doan is not actually a pacifist. Doan is just done with the war, but still inherently a warrior. And he has that, frankly, suicidal "Let me show you my Zaku martial arts" bit. And then Amuro is getting like teary eyed at the glory of the sacrifice that Doan is making by punching another Zaku apart, which is. The moment at which I really felt like this is not Gundam. Yes, in Gundam, sometimes people make the I must protect them sacrifice, Mm -hmm. but it's not glorious. It's not like uplifting music time. It's sad when that has to happen. And it doesn't have to happen here. And it's, it's not the usually... the Gundam and a Zaku against one other Zaku. Amuro could have shot the other Zaku. Amuro could have thrown that Zaku into the ocean. Right. There was no reason why Doan had to get his Zaku all shot up, nearly dying, we assume, for the drama of it, in order to punch another Zaku right in the cockpit. Then at the end, you have this totally nonsensical, <laughs> oh, don't you think... That the Xeon forces keep coming for you, Doan, not because you're still alive, but because of the scent of battle on you. Amaro and sense. Yeah. The scent of Matilda, the Ugh. scent of battle. Um, And then Amaro's solution to this is to throw the Zaku into the sea. Afterwards, the kids freak out, but Doan tells them to calm down. And he declares that he thinks Amaro's a good kid. And what does Roland think? And Roland agrees. <laughs> And it's never explained precisely why Amuro throwing their only mode of defense into the ocean is a good thing. There's no suggestion that the Zaku has a transmitter in it that is attracting Xeon forces or something. It's not entirely clear how Xeon knows that Doan is on this island or to send people to hunt him down. I think it's an accident. They're doing flybys and they're buzzing. I don't I don't even think they're really looking for him. Maybe. Basically, that whole scene, to me, felt like someone trying really hard to be deep mm-hmm. and 
sucking at it. Just just real bad. They were yeah. trying so hard to have some kind of deep message. It's the weapons that attract war to you or something like that. Well, or maybe they were trying to do a like armaments commentary of stockpiling arms isn't actually a deterrent. Stockpiling arms shows that you're preparing for war. Like maybe they're trying to go in that direction, but they do it badly and it doesn't come off. I have a different read on Amro throwing the Zaku into the sea. Mm -hmm. I know that... Your interpretation of it is almost certainly what the creators of the show intended. Mm -hmm. But my read here is that Amuro has just wanted to destroy that Zaku since the first moment he saw it. Zaku's are his trigger, and he <laughs> needs to destroy it before he can leave this island. Zaku's are my trigger! Um. <laughs> <laughs> Many episodes ago, I talked about the Japanese director Ozu, who I'm thinking of now because... We mentioned a possible connection between Ozu and Tomino, that Tomino's storytelling is fairly subtle. A lot of things are not explicitly stated. A lot of things we're allowed to sort of witness them without melodrama, but that that gives a lot of very true feeling to the scenes. And this episode is the total other direction. It's like all melodrama. <laughs> yeah. From the very moment Amuro is tending to one of these wounded soldiers and the guy goes Ugh. and Amuro says he didn't make it and Amuro doesn't even seem all that upset no <laughs> he's just like oops this pilot didn't make it <laughs> and then the other guy dies in his arms and he's even less phased by that I wonder if Amuro has a sign or like a tattoo on his back that says main character because Amuro gets medical treatment and a bed while the other Federation pilots get tied to their chairs and left to die well, and without understanding the situation at all, he did hop into the core fighter and try to destroy the Zaku. So yeah. there's no good reason why Amuro should be treated so well when those other guys were treated so poorly. Unless Doan didn't even know about those other pilots and it was the orphans who tied them up and left them to die. Those orphans seemed pretty bloodthirsty. I think that, yeah. there's a decent chance that that's what happened. That's one inconsistency resolved. We know exactly what happened there. Never let yourself be caught by the orphans. Why are there always three orphans? They come in packs of three. That's how you buy them in the store. But caretakers only come in packs of one. Just like hot dogs and hot dog buns. <laughs> Never same size pack. At the beginning of the episode, when Amuro is tending to these wounded pilots and suddenly someone starts throwing rocks at him, and later flaming sticks, and then he sees that it's children. I really wanted this to be a Lord of the Flies style, like Island of Lost Children, all the parents are dead situation. That would have been a much better episode. Or if remove Doan entirely from the show, make Roland the leader of this orphan gang, mm -hmm. then you could maybe do some interesting things paralleling and contrasting Roland and her orphans to Frabo and her orphans. I think there's a good episode there. I still think they could have done really good work with Doan and they've ruined it. A couple of other things that I went into the episode thinking might be issues and turned out not to be. The animation was fine. It's more I, or less, in, mm, you think it was worse? Total disagree. Oh, I think it was more or less as good or bad as any other episode. Oh, I strongly disagree. <laughs> Do tell. So there's some glaring consistency errors. The biggest they one. They always have those. I think the consistency errors were maybe worse than usual. There were some very obvious ones, including when Amuro launches carrying the bazooka and in the 
very next frame, he's carrying the rifle instead. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. The weird sex position Gundam transformation. Yeah, but that's like the position that the uh, gun cannon fires from in that one scene that they use over and over. It's true. Uh, it's a little weird that Ryu is so bothered seeing the Gundam in that position, but not bothered at all when the gun cannon takes the same downward dog firing pose. They hang a lampshade on it, right? They don't have to have Ryu say anything about it at all. And they chose yeah. to have Ryu be like, ooh, and I do not like seeing the Gundam like that. But why do they need to have that at all? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they don't they don't actually need to show that pose at all. They could just show the core fighter ejecting and Amuro being like, hey, Ryu, pick up the pieces of the Gundam, please. But I think the biggest issue with the animation is that tall, skinny Zaku. Oh, I thought it wasn't. So <laughs> that's fair. When I first saw it, I thought it must be some older model, not not one of the Zakus we've been seeing throughout the series. I thought it must have been from very early in the war. It's some strange, different model that we've never seen before. But then by the end, when the two Zaku are fighting, they look identical and they look like all of the other ones we've seen. Yeah, that's, that is supposed to be the same Zaku we've been seeing all along, but it's a, it's a long boy. <laughs> long, skinny boy. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think that's probably the biggest issue with the animation in this episode. And it's not just that the Zaku is like long and skinny. The head is all messed up. Like mm -hmm. that Zaku does not look like a Zaku. Well, it looks, like I said, it looks like a related but decidedly different mobile suit. Mm -hmm. In the Gundam decoupling scene, there is a brief period where the Gundam becomes kind of transparent and we see into the cockpit where Amuro is. Mm. And I can't think of that ever happening any other time in Gundam. Hmm. It's a very un-Gundam sort of effect. It really makes it more cartoony and takes mm -hmm. away from the sense of cinema and realism going on. And I can see how that alone would have been very offensive to Tomino. They also spend a lot of screen time on those transformations. We get three of them because we get the initial core fighter to Gundam remote coupling. We get the uncoupling when Amuro goes to check out the island. And then we get the transformation again when he does the sort of landing on the white base, gets hooked in and emergency combines. So we get three versions of that that are rendered with, I'm sure, what they meant to be quite a lot of detail and <laughs> focus. But I think it's rare for any one of these episodes to have more than one of those. It's like they were trying to take up time. <laughs> yeah, my theory for this episode is that it was created under some pretty tight time budget and resource constraints. And that's part of why it ended up being so weird. And there's some reasoning behind that. But we'll go into that into the research section when we start talking about who exactly was involved in making this. You had mentioned wanting to come back to mobile suit martial arts. <laughs> oh, yeah. It feels like a weird thing to draw attention to. Again, to kind of hang a lampshade on and be like, here is this very dramatic line about mobile suit martial arts. And then the actual scene involving it is very short and not that interesting. You think you're going to see some cool mobile suit unarmed fighting moves or something. And in fact, it's very boring. Yep, deeply disappointing. Luckily, there will be much more exciting mobile suit martial arts later on. So look forward to it. There's frankly already been some. We've seen it incorporated in all the other combats where people kick or shove 
or hit with their shield or, you know, as needed in close range, we've seen people use attacks that use the body of the mobile suit rather than oh, yeah. its weapons. Well, and in this episode, right after Doan announces that he's going to show Amuro some martial arts, the enemy Zaku does a flying double jump kick at them and Amuro just tosses it away with his shield. Yes. Apparently he does not need Doan's instruction. <laughs> We do get a return of some classic Kai sass. It's been a while since we've seen it, and I was glad to see it coming back. I'm glad that he hasn't completely reformed. And Amuro gets slapped again, this time by Roland, which means that canonically, in the Japanese, the number of times Amuro has been slapped is different from in the English. True. This is very important information, and I hope you will all be keeping track. <laughs> it's four, by the way. Four slaps for Amuro. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, and Frau is taking Sayla's job on the bridge. In fact, Sayla does not appear in this episode at all. Nope. Nor does Hayato. Maybe they're having a rest? Also, given how distraught Fra is in the last episode, she seems uncharacteristically calm when they haven't heard from him in 24 hours. Yeah, she should be freaking out. And insisting that someone go look for him and saying that they should go look for him. And I feel like we should have, you know, Mirai talking Fra down Redux. And yeah. we don't. Can I also just say, rookie mistake on Amuro's part, not looking behind the waterfall. Yeah, you got to check the waterfall. It's always that's, behind that's the waterfall. That's Secret Bases 101. <laughs> How does he not know this? Clearly, he should have spent less of his childhood working on computers and more of it reading fiction like us. Possibly in keeping with the feeling that people needed to better understand what the heck was going on, this episode opens with an actual diagram of where the sides are in space. Yeah, and it tells us that Side 7 has only been under construction for two years, which I remembered that Side 7 had not yet been completed, but I couldn't remember where I remembered it from. And we get that information at the beginning of this episode. And that four of the other sides have been destroyed in the yeah. war. Yeah, yeah. We also see the relative positions of all the sides, which is never made clear, really, at any other point in the series up to now. So you've heard our recap and you've listened to our first impressions. You may have watched the episode yourself if you've been able to find it. By now, you might have a couple of theories of your own about why this episode had to be cut out. And we have some too. We looked into who exactly was involved in creating First Gundam and who was involved in this particular episode. A lot of the fan speculation that I've read focused on the episode director, a man named Yokitani Minoru. And the assumption was that Yokitani Minoru was a director foisted upon the Gundam production staff by the sponsors as part of a power struggle over who was actually in control of this show, that there was a lot of friction between Tomino and this particular director, and that that is the reason why Tomino didn't want this episode released, because of a vendetta against this particular director who he really didn't like. And that's based on various comments Tomino has made, suggesting that it might be one particular person and that it might be somebody in the directorial staff of the episode. This theory falls apart a little bit once you find out that Yokitani Minoru is actually a pseudonym that Tomino uses himself when he directs episodes. 
So unless this is an example of some pretty extreme self-hate, that's <laughs> not what it is. He's just deeply embarrassed with how it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to look a little bit deeper. And that brought us to another person who is the animation director on this episode. For review, the animation director is the person in charge of all the visuals in the episode. His role is mainly to be the leader of the key animators and to oversee the production of the episode, following the storyboards, checking for consistency, making sure that the art is all good on model, stuff like that. Probably a certain amount of quality assurance. <laughs> Absolutely. And the role of an animation director can grow or shrink depending on the production. And we have a couple of reasons to believe that the animation directors on First Gundam had quite a bit of latitude and a big influence on the episodes they worked on. So the animation director for episode 15 was a guy named Suzumura Kazuyuki. Who I tried looking up in Japanese and couldn't find anything about him other than that he'd worked on this episode. Yeah, he's kind of a ghost. He has only two credits in any anime production. One of them is animation director on this episode, and one of them is as an animator on episode 40, also of First Gundam. Which is weird. It's extremely weird. Because animation director is not a job you just walk into off the street. It's not a job you get straight out of art school. Animation director is a job that usually you get by starting out as an animator and working your way up over a long period of time until you are trusted to be the animation director. So it's weird that there are no credits for this guy. That suggests to me basically three possibilities. Possibility one is that it's a pseudonym, which I think we encountered when we were talking about episode 11 and how the animation director for that episode used a pseudonym, probably because there were some problems with the animation in that episode and that director, we think, wanted to avoid being associated with it. It's also just not that uncommon, I believe, in Japanese art circles to make art under a pseudonym. Right. Though in that case with episode 11, this was a guy who worked under one name and then used this pseudonym for certain projects. Okay. Tomino is notorious for his uses of pseudonyms. Tomino is one of those guys who does like every role on the production for an anime, from storyboards <laughs> to writing lyrics for songs. And he uses different pseudonyms for different things that he does. His songwriting name is different from his storyboarding name is different from his directing name. So it could be a pseudonym. If it is, we haven't been able to track down who it's attached to. And normally that is something you can figure out with a fairly small amount of searching and a little bit of fluency in Japanese but we weren't able to find any evidence of that in this case. Possibility two is that this is somebody who was relatively fresh in their career, got this job, screwed it up, and then Tomino used all of his considerable <laughs> influence in the industry to make sure this person never got another job. Possible. I wouldn't put it past him. So what's your option three? Option three is that this is a non-anime person. This is somebody who works for the sponsor and was sent in essentially to ensure that the sponsor's ideas of how the show should happen happened. Somebody who didn't really know what they were doing and was probably a salaryman from Clover <laughs> or one of the other sponsors. When you mentioned that you had three theories, I thought of something along those lines, but I thought of nepotism. <laughs> and then it was someone who was not really qualified or prepared, but who by reason of connections was put in a position to do the animation direction for this one episode. And it went so badly, they never did it again. Or they suddenly realized animation wasn't for them <laughs> and uh, went and used that nepotism for something else. Yeah, that's certainly an option. So we have four theories at this point. There is another piece of evidence, which we discovered when we were looking at this episode. And that is that some or all of the animation for this episode was outsourced to a different animation company called Anime Friend or Anime Furendo. 
We looked into Anime Friend a bit. They were a subsidiary of Tatsunoko Productions. While Tatsunoko still exists and is still making anime, Anime Friendo <laughs> closed in 1990. Anime Friend appears to have been one of the earliest of the studios to locate in Korea, where animators could be hired much more cheaply than in Japan. And so other anime studios like Sunrise would send work to them when they were overloaded and they needed something done quickly and cheaply. In theory... The heads of Anime Friend, or Tatsunoko staff, were supposed to be handling the planning, the operations, the production management, ordering the subcontracting, and fixing any problems with the animation that arrived from Korea. It's hard to know whether in this case they fixed as much as they could and they just couldn't fix everything, or if someone was not doing their job. So this raises a fifth possibility for the identity of Suzumura, which is that Suzumura could be a pseudonym used by a Korean animator, somebody from Anime Friend who was tasked with directing the animation for this episode and who used a Japanese pseudonym for working in the anime industry. A lot of Koreans who work in Japan do adopt Japanese names, and that's been a practice that's been going on for a long time. It could also have been imposed by the parent company as a practice because there is a certain amount of, of racism and prejudice against Koreans in Japan. And so there might have been a strong desire to make sure you didn't have Korean names in your credits. Absolutely. That would also explain why it was so hard to track down the, let's say, real identity of the person behind the pseudonym, especially if they were not an established person in the industry at this point. And they may not have wanted to be associated with this. And so the Japanese fans, who are usually the ones to puzzle out who is behind the pseudonym and then publish that kind of information on the internet, might have had a more difficult time identifying some animator working in Korea. Because it's the sort of person I am, I'm suddenly very paranoid that I missed something. That I didn't <laughs> that the reason we didn't find anything is because I didn't look hard enough. Yeah, this is like the biggest mystery of First Gundam. So if anyone can find the definitive answer for why Tomino killed this episode, we would love that. For real, if any of you figure it out, I won't even be mad. I will be thrilled that somebody figured it out. <laughs> also, Tomino has said repeatedly, I cannot tell you who is responsible because <laughs> they are still alive. So maybe we just have to wait and pray that Tomino outlives this guy. <laughs> I was going to say, what if Tomino dies first? Tomino can't be allowed to die. So I mentioned my theory that this person may have been sent in by the sponsors in order to exert some control over this deeply unpopular, confusing, runaway freight train of an anime. And I think there is some support for that in this episode, if you know the requisite context. During our first impressions, we discussed these weird, skinny Zaku, the ones that don't look anything like the other Zaku in the show. And after, after reading some very dense Japanese fan blogs about this episode, we were able to figure out that those skinny Zaku are actually more faithful to the original design documents that Okawara Kunio, the mecha designer for the show, came up with when First Gundam was originally being planned at the pre-production level. The conventional story about First Gundam is that this auteur genius Tomino had this vision of what Gundam was going to be, and he assembled his team of superstars, and then he fought the sponsors, and he was able to get his creation made, but they kept chiseling away at it and hampering him and forcing him to put in things he didn't want there and sullying his perfect creation. Which is not true. <laughs> You don't say. <laughs> 
the way anime usually gets made is a production committee made up of the sponsors and the studios that are putting it together and the TV stations that are going to be putting it on gets together at a high level and decides more or less what the anime is going to be. And they bring in people like the mecha designer, the character designer to establish what the look and feel of the show is going to be. In First Gundam's case, Tomino wasn't actually brought on until fairly late in this pre-production process. And his contributions, while very significant, were mostly around the world and the story and the characters themselves, but the look and feel had mostly been decided already. Under Tomino's influence, a lot of changes were made before we got to the Gundam that we know today. But the original designs, which were very different and were designed, remember, for a show called Gunboy and for suits worn rather than piloted, suits much closer to the size of a person and much more like a person in terms of their proportions, those designs had largely been made already and they were then modified. So those tall, skinny Zaku are based on these original design documents that Okawara made for a human-sized Zaku-looking suit that would have been worn by a soldier. The big beefy Zaku, the ones that actually look like mech, those we understand were designed mostly by Yasuhiko, the character designer, or Yas. So those early designs would have been the ones that the sponsors initially saw and initially approved. They were probably the designs that the sponsors used to design toys. We know that the original Gundam toys did not actually resemble the Gundam that appeared in the show because the design had changed so much. So they were probably selling Zaku toys that didn't really super look like the Zakus in the show. So when a new director comes in, somebody no one has ever heard of, and the main thing that they do is insist that the Zaku designs use the older original concept art, it suggests to me that that might have been the sponsor's influence. The other weird thing about the Zaku in this episode is that they behave like super robots instead of like robots. They're jumping around, they're doing flying kicks, they're throwing each other with no respect for the weight of the machines in a way that we haven't seen in any other Gundam episode. And that super robot feel is probably more like what the sponsors thought they were going to be getting. So they brought in a director who was going to give them that. And finally, this episode shows the Zaku really showing off mobile suit martial arts flying through the air, throwing rocks at missiles. It makes the Zaku look impressive, and maybe the idea was that that would sell more toys. Yeah, that double flying kick thing. <laughs> I rewatched that scene, and I realized there's just a ton of crazy acrobatic Zaku stuff going on there that is ludicrously impossible, <laughs> especially on Earth. I was going to say, you know, in space, sure. I'm glad we have an opportunity to talk about Okoara Kunio. He's a very interesting character. He is the first person in the anime industry to be credited as a mechanical designer. He was born and raised in Tokyo, December 26, 1947 to now. So we're coming up on his birthday. Omedito. He studied graphic design and wound up switching over to textile design at one point. He worked as a fashion designer. And it sounds like he got into drawing because he drew background displays for a store where he worked. This led to an art position at Tatsunoko Productions. On his art director's recommendation, he was assigned to design the enemy mecha for science ninja team Gachaman. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the show, so, right? Science, Science Ninja, Ninja Team Gachaman. <laughs> Soon after this assignment, he began doing mecha design exclusively. After his success on Science Ninja Team Gachaman, 
He worked on other series such as Tekaman Space Knight and Time Boken, and decided to strike out on his own as an independent contractor in mecha design. He first worked with Tomino on Invincible Steelman Daitarn 3, and Tomino asked him to work on what was then titled Gun Boy. Tomino requested a more practical and realistic design, specifically referencing the powered armor from Heinlein's Starship Troopers, in contrast to more fanciful designs from previous giant robot shows. And it sounds like Tomino did not precisely get his way on this, or at least not completely. While Okawara Kunio has since been joined by many new mechanical designers, he set the standard that most of them riff on, and he in turn is inspired by their take on his earlier works. He is still working. He designed for Gundam Unicorn in 2010 and World of Tanks Blitz in 2016. He is quoted as having said that his favorite of all the designs he's done are those for Shipu Iron Leaguer. I have never heard of that. Me neither. We'll have to look it up yeah. and see the pictures. I'd like to know what he considers his finest work. It might be useful in trying to determine which parts of the mecha designs came from Okawara and which parts came from Tomino. Because Tomino was notorious for scribbling drawings of mecha and then giving them to Okawara to <laughs> fill out. Really? I mean, like, here, I designed it. Just make it, you know, more <laughs> polished. <laughs> make it more good. Yikes. If I were a lead designer of any kind, I would find that super infuriating. Oh, you think Tomino would be infuriating to work with? The thing that this episode made me wonder about most was actual deserters during World War II. Now, obviously, it's impossible to have very precise numbers with regard to deserters, but it's estimated that 50,000 Americans in the European theater and 100,000 British soldiers deserted. The British soldiers were, after all, in the war longer. And closer to home. There were many fewer desertions in the Pacific, largely because there was nowhere to run to. Not everyone had an idyllic, mostly deserted tropical island where they could hide out. Some of you may have heard the old statistic, but I think close to true, that of the massive United States Army, only 10% were fighting men. Only 10% were on the front lines. It was from this 10% that most of the deserters came. Desertion was often not a conscious decision. Many men described going into almost a, a fugue state, being strongly disoriented and wandering away from the battlefield, holing up in abandoned barns, resting, and eventually coming out of it and looking for the rest of their group or battalion after they came out of it. You know, these were men who were severely worn down and often receiving really subpar leadership, particular groups would have higher rates of desertion than other groups. And this is often attributed to poor leadership. That makes sense. All volunteer forces like the Marines had almost no desertions. Again, makes sense. If you volunteered for this and knew what you were signing up for, you're much less likely to panic or to get worn down in that same way. The Marines also place such a high emphasis on esprit de corps. Right. And uh, frankly... <laughs> Many men in the European theater fell in love with local women, and when the army moved on, they stayed. This particularly happened in France and in Italy. They were almost never turned in by other frontline soldiers. Other frontline soldiers tended to sympathize <laughs> with a deserter. They were typically turned in by administrative people, cooks and admins. The wartime Japan military executed soldiers on desertion charges, but many of those charges were false. 
One of the particular difficulties in the Japanese case is that most of the paper records were destroyed after the Japanese surrender. And so the Japanese government has refused post-war remediation related to these wrongful executions. So they sort of throw up their hands and say, oh, we don't have any of the paperwork. We don't know what happened. Are you saying that Japan is refusing to reckon with bad things that the country and the government did before and during World War II? That's so <laughs> weird. They never do that. A former judge from these cases has said straight out most of the time there was no pretense of a trial. Beyond the fact that being executed for desertion dishonors the family, it also meant that the survivors' families would not receive any sort of military pension, which they would otherwise have been entitled to. So this is an ongoing battle. The Japanese army also consistently lied about its own desertion numbers. No surprise there. Something like 5,000 soldiers in Southeast Asia and possibly tens of thousands in China are thought to have been executed for desertion for mostly personal or political reasons rather than actually for having deserted. Wow. So 5,000 and 10,000 were executed. And that's just that's not even the number of total desertions. No. Out of the 50,000 U.S. soldiers who deserted, how many were executed? One. That's a much smaller number than 15,000. Yes. We actually, we being the United States, sentenced 49 deserters to death, but all but one of their sentences were commuted. And you could argue that the young man who was executed happened to get very unlucky. Did he commit super desertion or? He was an ex-convict with a long prison record and showed absolutely no remorse for his desertion and deserted right before the Battle of the Bulge. It was such a crucial point in the war. And with such a big battle coming up, the incentive to desert must have been enormous. Yes. And so there was a strong feeling that they needed to make an example of someone. His name was Eddie Slovic, and he was the only American soldier to be court-martialed and executed for desertion since the Civil War. Wow. And his contention as he was being led to the firing squad was that they felt he was particularly expendable because he was an ex-con. Some chilling stuff. Yeah, poor guy. Because I'm pretty sure we're in the South Pacific in this episode, I tried to look for information on that region specifically and found out that locals in Papua New Guinea were largely pressed into allied service and forced into indentured labor. And desertion amongst that group was very high. Well, desertion or escape, <laughs> depending on how you want to put it, <laughs> due to the particularly horrible labor conditions, the lack of resources, and the fact that they were constantly getting news that their home villages had been attacked and wanted to go check on their families. There were also mass desertions from the Dutch colonial forces after they were defeated by the Japanese in the invasion of Indonesia. Content warning, some pretty awful war violence. Skip ahead 10-20 seconds. Kukuru's Doan talks about slaughtering a village full of people, right? And that he just couldn't bring himself to kill the kids. An American soldier talking about the war is quoted as having said, We sometimes accidentally killed whole families. You don't have time to ask who was in the cellar before you threw in a grenade. Sometimes, too, a little girl or boy would come running out with one or both arms blown off, crying hysterically and wild with fear. And I don't care how brave you are. I think if you've seen that, if you've done that, it probably crosses your mind to just walk off into the woods and not come back. Back in episode two, we talked a bit about the Battle of Okinawa and the Japanese defense of the island and the many, many atrocities committed by the Imperial Japanese Army there. 
one of the main ones having been that they frequently used civilian buildings and civilian bodies as human shields. One somewhat more upbeat desertion case, a handful of enlisted men in an intelligence unit stationed in Okinawa concluded they'd be better off with the Americans than with the Japanese. They thought perhaps Japan would be made into a new U.S. state or would get to be made a republic like France. So they deserted and they actually had to desert twice because after their first desertion, they were picked up again <laughs> and surrendered to the first Americans they got to. And while there are no accurate numbers about this, there were also considerable Japanese desertions in China and Indochina, Indochina being the peninsula that has Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, etc. And many of those deserters went on to join the Chinese Communist Army and the Viet Minh. Well, you imagine a bunch of poor soldiers pressed into service for their country may not, in fact, have the greatest affection for the imperial system. Which is to say... In the grand narrative, in this retelling of World War II, there is absolutely a place to talk about deserters. They just didn't do a very good job. Yeah. When you read the Japanese commentary on this episode, the thing that keeps coming up over and over again is people asserting that Doan's desertion is intended to be a commentary on Vietnam War desertions by American soldiers. Huh. And it's totally not. That's interesting because, yeah, I would assume fundamentally they would want to think it's about Vietnam War desertions because they feel like they're on the moral right side of that. Your point also reminds me of a professor I had when I studied abroad in Japan who uh, waited until he had tenure and then proceeded to teach history classes that dealt very honestly with Japan's atrocities in the war. Uh, and they tried to fire him and then they were like, ah, nuts, we gave him tenure. Yeah, I think in this series that we have seen over and over and over again is predominantly about World War II and a little bit about World War One, And a series that Tomino has expressly said is about World War II too, and about how much he despises Japanese militarism, about responding to the resurgence of Japanese militarism within his lifetime. The idea that this is not about World War II and not about Japanese desertions during World War II is ludicrous. And I think it's just another example of a problem we've seen before where a lot of people in Japan have a lot of difficulty reckoning with the bad things that Japan did during the war. A big part of which has to be that those things are just not taught anymore. There was a brief window when they were, <laughs> and then promptly that information was removed from textbooks and from schools. And if you don't learn about such things until you're an adult. Yeah, those forces that Tomino was responding against, the forces of a resurgent Japanese militarism, are the same forces that saw those textbooks edited and those things removed from the public consciousness. Uh, and that's a perfect segue into the word that Doan uses when he says mobile suit martial arts. Nice. Nicely done, sir. Thank you. So in the climactic scene of the episode, Doan tells Amuro to stand back while he fights the enemy Zaku, declaring that he will continue fighting so long as the orphan trio are still alive, and once again fully embracing the warrior nature that he fled but could not actually discard. He then tells Amuro to watch as he displays his mobile suit martial arts in action. It's an odd scene, and it's starkly out of place in an episode about trying to leave the war behind, and even more so in a show that has always depicted combat as terrifying, brutal, brutal and unfair. 
And it's an odd line. The word he uses for martial arts is kakutogi, a troublesome little word with an interesting history and a lot of nuance that makes it difficult today to parse what it was meant to mean back in 1979. So it's odd and out of place at such a crucial moment. It seems to me like it must have meant something. The word comes from kakuto, which means a fight, but has connotations suggesting a small scale, hand-to-hand -hand sort of affair, rather than a pitched battle. And you can use it metaphorically, like when you want to say that you were fighting with a particularly difficult fish. <laughs> a fish? Like to catch a fish when you're fishing and there's a difficult fish and you fight with it. That's kakuto. That's a fight. Okay. Never heard this expression? I guess, <laughs> I mean, I have, but I didn't know the nuances of it. <laughs> So if you remember from our discussion of judo in episode 1.13, the skills practiced by hereditary warrior clans in Japan's early history were called buge. And historically, there was a term kakuto buge, which was used to distinguish those sorts of martial arts that involved actual fighting techniques from skills like siegecraft or espionage that didn't. The gi ending on the end of kakutogi means skill. So in a literal kind of sense, kakutogi means the skills of fighting. And that use historically of kakuto derived words to distinguish actual fighting martial arts from more esoteric ones has actually survived into the modern day. But today, kakutogi is used to distinguish modern competitive combat sports like boxing, wrestling, and judo from less sport-oriented budo martial arts like sumo wrestling and kudo archery. Now that distinction is actually only a little bit helpful because the definition of budo is itself notoriously slippery and there are lots of martial arts that could be categorized as one or the other depending on what your mood today happens to be. It's also, it turns out, a very modern distinction and one that was driven by politics. Of course it was. Isn't everything. Everything's political. See, after the U.S. occupied Japan at the end of World War II, the new Japanese government, with some encouragement from the Americans, although just how much encouragement remains a widely debated point that deserves its own dedicated research piece. Anyway, the Japanese government started to crack down on martial arts organizations that were considered too militaristic. At this point, Budo philosophy had been so thoroughly co-opted by the militarists before the war that it had to go. And probably the most important part of this crackdown on Budo was that during the 1950s, the new Ministry of Education eliminated all references to Budo from the school curricula. And these were not small changes. We're talking about a country that had incorporated martial arts into their schools on a massive scale in the decades before the war. But they were still smaller than they would have looked on paper, because at the same time, the Ministry of Education also adopted new terminology that allowed them to keep some martial arts, like judo, that were less tied to the militarist past. That term was kakugi, meaning combat sports. And it's just the word kakutogi, with the character to, meaning war, removed, in order to make it seem, you know, less warlike. <laughs> They used kakugi until 1989 when, either because they felt they were now far enough removed from the negative implications of Budo, or because they thought no one was watching anymore, the Ministry of Education resumed using that older term, Budo. So the most common uses of kakutogi today are all revolving around those combat sports. But there is another, more obscure one that we do have to wrestle with when we're looking at this episode. Because kakutogi is also the word used in Japanese to describe the modern military system of no rules fighting that we in English call close quarters combat, or CQC. 
So what does it all mean? Well, Doan doesn't say kakugi, which at the time would have been the word being used for martial arts in schools. He doesn't just use the word that the writers would have learned when they were school children themselves and that the audience in 1979 would have been most familiar with. Instead, he uses a word that suggests both the unarmed one-on-one -on -one sport fighting practiced by civilians for recreation and the gritty anything-goes close-range killing performed by soldiers. And why not say budo or bujitsu or jujitsu? They can't possibly have been worried that this Zeon soldier was going to seem too militaristic, can they? Well, I have a theory. This is Dawn's episode, but in it, he exists entirely within how other people view him. The children see him as a protector, and so he swears to protect them, not as long as he's alive, but as long as they're alive. Roland sees him as a man who has given up war, and so he is whenever she's around, but Amuro sees him first as an enemy warrior and then as a courageous ally and he becomes those things for Amuro. And this helps to explain the contradictions between when he seems like a pacifist and when he seems like a true warrior. What really sealed this interpretation for me is that nightmare he has around the middle of the episode when he flashes back to the night that he killed the orphan's parents. Even in his own dream, Doan watches himself from outside. He's on the ground looking up at the Zaku he piloted, towering over him. He sees himself in that monstrous form. And what does this have to do with Kakutogi? Well, there's an element of spectacle in sport fighting. Budo, that happens within the practitioner. And close quarters combat is functionally better when it's invisible. But sport, Kakutogi, it exists to be seen. And when Doan tells Amuro, watch my Kakutogi, witness me, at that same moment, his orphan trio bursts out of the jungle to cheer him on like adoring fans at a wrestling match as he delivers his knockout blow. He's ready to die in that moment so that people will see him and think well of him, because being viewed well by them is the only thing he has that protects him against those dreams and the part of him that sees himself as a monster. A brief language note, Tom has commented on, we assume Tomino's obsession with smells. <laughs> First, we have the scent of a woman from Matilda. We can argue about that later. But in this episode, they use the phrase tatakai no nyoi, the scent of battle that is supposedly on Dawn. Now, to be absolutely sure, I looked it up. And the thing is, for nyoi, the word nyoi usually means scent, smell, or odor, but can also mean an aura, a sense, or a flavor in the abstract sense of the word. I assume, because it would make more sense, that in this episode, Nyoi is being used in the sense of an aura of battle, an aura of war or violence. Also, totally unrelated and not really helpful, but interesting. There are two different kanji or characters for the word Nyoi, one with positive connotations and one with negative ones. Impossible to know which one he used here. Really, even within the context of the episode, it's impossible to know whether it would have been positive nyoi or negative nyoi. The line Amuro says suggests negative, right? That this is something that needs to be cleansed from Dawn before he will be safe. But the structure of the episode, the framing of it, the way Dawn is depicted, it's clear that we're supposed to see this guy as heroic and powerful, somebody for Amuro to aspire to be. At the same time, he's someone who's done horrible things and Amuro should not aspire to be like him. It's a weird disconnect that I think has to come from different people trying to pull the episode in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that was the problem with this episode. Maybe there were too many people in charge, too many cooks type situation. Yeah. 
They could also have just written nyoi in hiragana, left it neutral. It's interesting you mentioned the two different kanji because kakutogi actually has two different kanji too. The first one, kaku, can use a kanji for fighting or it can use a kanji for rules. Interesting. Yeah, giving it that sense of competition fighting, sport fighting, tournament fighting. Next time on episode 1.16, Answers at Any Price. Watching and waiting. The crew gets salty. A very sinister hobby. UFOs. A wandering lake. A desert rendezvous. Rumba y jamón. Tell them I'm not here. Where is Char, anyway? And Sandstorm by Darude. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The animation was fine more or less as good or bad as any other episode. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. funny if you watch Attack on Titan Abridged. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's still funny. You said a funny thing in a funny voice. That's funny. I'm looking forward to some of the future series that have a lot of episodes but aren't very good where I can, we can just like go through the episodes and be like, and in this episode, nothing important happened. <laughs> um... We may, we may never get to that point. Aww. But... I can hear all your mouth sounds. <laughs> From characters like Roland and Doan. Oh no, it rhymes. Where... In some sources, Roland is Roland. So maybe we should just go with that. Eh. voice actor on Twitter told me to drink water so not me directly but like people people doing <laughs> people doing voice stuff so I trust Amaro's voice actor who despite having despite <laughs> in spite of their in, in spite of their interest in Gunpla <laughs> they are in fact a great human <laughs>
your, <laughs> your true feelings come out. Oh God, it's getting all Freudian up in here. <laughs> Even sounds stupid when you boil it down to a recap. That's not my fault. I know. I'm just saying, like, you did your best to <laughs> leave in only the bits that made sense. <laughs> and it's still terrible. You're not wrong. I was rifling papers. Though. That's okay. I'll just turn your mic off for that section. Oh, that's right. You can do that. Yeah. I'm so scared that you can hear all my swallowing noises <laughs> and it won't even matter. No, it won't. That's amazing. <laughs> I could cry. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't understand the joy it is to go from a single mic to two mics. Neat. Neat. I have nothing else to say about this episode.